Podcast is brought to you by Sato, enabling a paradigm shift into blockchain applications. Sato is a layer one blockchain that provides the foundation for building open and scalable web applications. You can build and deploy great apps that interact with the blockchain with ease. Unlike other blockchains, Sato's economic incentives are fundamentally aligned, allowing for true and sustainable Web3. For more information, go to Sato.io. That's S A I T O.io. And now for today's episode. everyone. Welcome to another episode of Cryptocurrent. Your host here, Richard Carthon. And today I have a very special guest all the way out in Taiwan working on a really cool layer one solution. Uh, we have David with Saito. How are you doing today? Uh, you know, it's the beginning of the day for you and it's the end of it for me, but it's been a good day. So uh, yeah, things are great. You know, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Absolutely, man. Well, uh, excited to learn more about everything you have going on. But first, let's dive more into who you are and a little bit of background on yourself. Do you mind just sharing a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, uh, I guess my background, I'm Canadian. Uh, I, I went to grad school in the States at Berkeley uh, and was studying kind of economics, political science, cryptography. Uh, ended up in China, uh, running my own business eventually. And, you know, got into crypto like a lot of people do. It Kind of takes you off the beating, beaten path. And this was back like 2012, 2013. And so we were, my co-founder and I, uh, we were in Beijing through all of the block size wars, all of this crazy, really crazy early stage growth. Um, and, you know, Sato emerges, what we're doing emerges from that period because our way of looking at the problems is very different than other people. And it took us until about 2017 to figure out Actually, we think the way we need to solve these problems is solving economic problems, not technical ones. Um, and that led to Sato, which is a layer one blockchain. Uh, and hopefully we can talk about it today, you know? Oh, definitely, man. So like, it, it's cool that you've been in this space for as long as you have. And again, you, you go to the core of what some, some core challenges were and still are today. Um, and it, it was the impetus for creating Sato. So let's kind of just start there. Like, what were some of these underlying challenges from a foundational standpoint that you saw that needed to be addressed? A lot of people, they think about blockchain as something that's technical. And so when they see problems like, oh, we're having problems growing the blockchain, they, they immediately jump to, this is a technical problem with a technical solution. Uh, for instance, uh, a really obvious one is the block size cap, right? Like how big should we let blocks get? And, right. and we didn't have lots of technical discussions like, oh, what's the latency of sending blocks back and forth? And, um, you know, miners, how big, how big blocks can, the, can people actually process? Um, but if we take a look at the block size wars, there's another way of looking at that same problem, which is, and there, there are two big problems. This is the first one. It's that, the miners, the block producers, 
they don't have an incentive to make the right size blocks. If you could fix that problem, then you wouldn't need a block size cap. But it's a really weird thing to come into a tech space and say, because people are like, should we have one megabyte blocks? Should we have two megabyte blocks? And if you come and you say, well, actually, you should fix the economic layer so that people are maximizing their profitability when they are maximizing the size of the blockchain, but it's not like, it's not too big. That's a really weird thing to say. People really have difficulty grappling with it, but that's the solution that Saito actually comes up with for uh, blockchain block size. Um, there's another problem too. The second problem, another incentive issue is it's like, what do we pay for? And a lot of people, you know, if, you know, why do we pay for mining and why do we pay for staking? Um, people have decided that this is what's proper to pay for because this is what Bitcoin does. Proof of work, proof of stake comes in. Um, and there are a lot of real fundamental economic problems that this creates in other chains. Um, one of them you you know about Infura, I imagine. Yes? Infura, the, yeah. You know, last time we were at the Stanford Blockchain Conference, the numbers we were hearing were that they were processing about 80 to 90% of Ethereum's fee flow, which means 90 cents of every dollar that the network collects goes through that one corporate controlled server. Right. Now, if you're collecting 90 cents out of every dollar, you own that network because right. you control who actually gets ultimately to put that money in their pocket. And right now, Infura is being a good boy. It's sharing that with the other people on the network. And so there's this lovely land grab where everyone's like, yeah, let me set up a miner. Let me set up a validator. And they're not actually running infrastructure that gets people using the network and making fees. So everyone is kind of parasitically free riding on this company that is funded by Joe Lubin, an early ETH guy. Um, but the network itself isn't sustainable. And we take a look at all of these proof of stake networks and the proof of work ones that are trying to scale. And what we see is actually what economics uh, started predicting in the 1960s, which is that the networks are kind of falling apart into uh, a monopolistic and oligopolistic corporate structure. Because at the end of the day, you need someone to pay for stuff. And if the network, the consensus layer isn't doing it, the free market has to. And again, mm -hmm. this is why the incentives matter. Because if you're, you know, you've got, if you say, well, we're going to let the free market do it, it doesn't mean the free market is going to be successful at doing it in the way you want it to happen, right? Like you can get market successes, but you can also get market failures. And because of the economic incentive misalignments, what we see in proof of work and proof of stake is market failures that lead to the, the data flows on the network being controlled by these big companies. Uh, and the solution for that is we actually need to pay for it in consensus. In consensus. Okay. So let's stick with those two problems at first. So first, it's just how big do we make these blocks on the blockchain, right? How much data do we put on, whether it's one megabyte up to gigabyte, et cetera. And it's not necessarily that we should be framing that way. It's like, how are we incentivizing uh, well, the, the right. size that's, of that's, those. That's the technical framing. Everyone jumps into it. The first is, how can we make it so that if you're a block producer, you don't want to add more data than the chain can support? Right. Because if you fix that, you don't have a bloat problem. You don't need a block size cap. I mean, and one of the things is, a lot of the times with devs who approach it as technical, you say, well, what's your solution? And they'll go like, oh, a megabyte. 1.5 million. Say, well, what information are you using to make that judgment? You know, 
Like they have no idea. Um, they have a preference based on their own viewpoint, but you know, it's not objective. Uh, they, they really genuinely don't know. And they can't right. forecast what costs are going to be in the future. So you need a market solution. You need the market to be able to tell you, look, this is the optimal, this is the optimal amount of data for me to put on. So that's one. The second one is really about value measurement. Right. Um, right. Like all proof of work and proof of stake, it's we're paying the security providers and we're not paying anyone else. And well, that leads to market failures. It's like a company that pays you to, it's a house painting company. And what it's going to do is it's going to pay you to buy cans of paint. So if someone goes out and buys a can of paint, it will pay for that. But it's not paying for people to go out and paint houses. And it's not paying for salesmen to go out and get customers. So there are all of these activities that these networks need, like what Infura provides. Like somebody needs to get the block data to the users and to their wallets. That's like what Bitcoin.com does. That's what, you know, Etherscan does. Um, anytime you're running, like uh, it's what Infura does. So there's all of this work and we're not paying for it either. And so, you know, your incentive if you're in the network is, we well, don't want that job. Like, don't give me the job of collecting the money. I want the job of getting paid. And what's happened in the space is people like Vitalik, he says the job of the miners is to secure the network. Um, he's totally wrong. Um, the job of the miners is supposed to be to do what network needs to make money. But in reality, there's a market failure there. Like all they do is focus on the thing that makes the money. So, you know, that's a value measurement problem. And that's fundamental because how, if you have proof of work and proof of stake, how do you pay someone to go out and get money? Like the algorithm can't do it. I could show right. up and say, hey guys, uh, hey guys, I collected a million bucks for us. And people will say, okay, well, what's your proof? You know, because what right. happens, it's going to give money to some guy who shows up. And there, there's a lot of these technical solutions. Like uh, there's a beautiful one with EOS where people are trying to de design these technical constitutions and mechanisms to measure it, right? Where you've got master nodes, which have special rules for them, right? Like that's no longer an open network because you've now got these special nodes that have special rules. And you can't just set one of those up. But the EOS story I heard, um, and I'm pretty sure it's not apocryphal, is it in the early days, they had five servers that were storing copies of the blockchain, full copies. And they needed those full copies of the blockchain to get paid. What it actually was, was a single server with five NIC cards. So it was all just on one hard drive. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how do you measure that? You can't. You can't cheat. Yeah. So like so, if you're in a mark, go ahead. No, so I'll just, to, to, to bring it back home. So, and, and then to, to, to kind of dive into how uh, Satio is, is, is fixing these challenges. So again, going back to the, the first problem, which is deciding how big do you want your blockchain to be? It, there shouldn't be like a hard and set number that it, the, based on the incentives that are going on should be the deciding factor, which I'm sure you'll explain how y'all go and address that. Like the question is, what is the optimal size for the blockchain? The right. question is not how big should our blocks be? Like the answer to that is your block should be optimally big. Optimally but, big. You know, they should be optimally big, yeah. right? Like you want the blockchain to like, here's, here's a thought experiment. Um, and it kind of gets maybe to what people can think about this. If adding more data increases the value that the blockchain delivers and doesn't lead the blockchain to collapse, you want to increase the blocks because you want to be maximizing value. That's what would be optimal. Now, 
if you're collapsing the blockchain, you're obviously not increasing value because the network disappears. Um, but it's a different kind of question to ask. It's also very, like, it feels abstract and theoretical when you first come to it. Right. Um, because and, we're used to four megabytes. Right. Megabytes. And, and people are, are used to that. And I definitely want to come back and see how, uh, you know, Sato is, is solving that. But then I also want to go to problem two really quickly, just another yeah. way of framing it, where a lot of these blockchains are, you know, proof of work, proof of stake, where they are paying the network to basically lay down the piping, right? So, so the way I'm looking at it is like you, you go to a city, you're putting in the infrastructure and you put all the piping for all the sewage, but then you don't want to build the houses, build the bathrooms, build the well, everything they, else they, that you would need to do the whole thing. They don't pay for piping. They don't pay for the network. Proof of stake pays stakers, right? People mm -hmm. love it. It's like, that's free money. I have some tokens. I put them in the staking bank. I make money. It's not, I'm, not, I'm not putting down pipes. Right. I'm not running fiber optic infrastructure from Asia to North America. I'm not running an ISP. Like if someone goes to Etherscan and they want to check some smart contract address, like that's not, I'm not paying for that. Now. Now, so, so to complete that, right? So when you have this, you, 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 in the way that you're explaining it is, although they are making money with that, it is not properly incentivizing to further build out that as a solution that like kind of completes the entire circle of economic value. Hey everyone, just wanted to let you know about all of the amazing content that we're making for you exclusively over on YouTube. You can stay connected to crypto's top stories and trending topics with the Aftershock. Every Wednesday, join cryptocurrency Steve Miller and myself for a brand new discussion on what's going on in the wild world of Web3. If you want to learn more about cryptocurrency and blockchain, but don't know where to start, Crypto Decrypted will cover everything from basics and fundamental analysis to the advanced concepts of technical analysis. Join Chris K every Thursday exclusively on YouTube to get this content. Finally, if you want to take a deeper dive into the world of NFTs and learn more about all the latest and greatest and what's happening in that space while capturing alpha, Join Steven on NFT Thursdays exclusively on Twitter Spaces on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. We hope you're enjoying our content. And if you're enjoying it, please like, subscribe, share, and leave comments so that we can continue to give you the content to keep you cryptocurrent. Yeah. Let, let's drag it back to 2014, 2015. Because right now, if you say the things people were saying about proof of work and proof of stake back then, you sound stupid. But it's great to remind people of what people were saying. Um, back then, you've got the big blockers in proof of work, and you've got the BTC guys. And the BTC guys say, look, we can't let this network get big. If the network gets big, then volunteers are going to go away, and no one's going to run these nodes on the network. And we've actually seen with the scalable blockchains like Ethereum that volunteers go away very, very quickly. But they're the big blockers and they say, well, no, 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 you don't understand economics. Uh, the miners are making money and the miners need a big network in order to make money. So the miners will pay for the network or they won't make money. And there's a variation of that basically in almost every scalable model of proof of work and proof of stake. It's like, well, if we don't scale, somebody's not going to make money. And so they're going to solve this problem for us because it's the free market. And people hear that and they go, well, that makes sense, right? Like, I want to make money, so I'll do what I need to make money. But there's actually a fundamental market problem there. Like, this, it's not how free markets work. 
Note, first of all, that there are two equilibrium in that statement. Miners will pay for it or miners won't get paid. So one, why are we assuming that the miners get, they pay for it and they get paid as the successful outcome? Why are we assuming the successful outcome is the outcome? Well, we can't do that. That's like reasoning backwards. That's like saying we're all going to pay our tax because if we don't, we're going to be invaded by a foreign country. That might be true, but that doesn't mean that everyone's going to pay their tax. And, you know, people, if I think part of the problem is that a lot of the people is a very naive view of markets, which assumes the job of the free market is to solve their problem. But the job of the free market is not to solve their problem. The free market is just a set of incentives that leads you to a certain outcome. And what they're doing there is they're, they're reasoning backwards from their desired outcome. And they're saying, because the desired outcome is the best outcome, that's the one we're oriented towards. Um, to give you an example of just how, how wrong this is, have you heard of the prisoner's dilemma? Yes. Right. So hopefully people listening have, you've got two guys and they're separated and the cops go to them and they say, look, if you rat out your friend, we're not going to put you in jail for very long. He's going to go in the tank for 20 years. Uh, and they're trying to get both of them to cooperate. If what people were saying in blockchain made any sense, the prisoner's dilemma would not be a problem because people would be like, well, of course the prisoners won't rat out each other because that would be suboptimal. Right? Like they reason backwards. The best outcome for everyone is that everyone doesn't talk to the cops. So nobody talks to the cops. But it's like, no, that's not how a free market works. What happens yeah. in a free market is people maximize what is, they maximize their own profits. And That's you right. have to look at incentive structure. And what that means is, you know, the, the Nash equilibrium, if you know about game theory and work through this stuff, it's the situation in which you will do this regardless of what the other guy does. Because no yep. matter what he does, that's what makes you best off. That's right. So that's Real quick, I, I, I do just want to do a quick side note on this. So back in uh, college or university, um, I took a negotiations class. And the very first day, uh, we basically played this game where uh, you had to, you, the goal was to win, period. And uh, you were uh, a gas station owner. And basically, if you both decided to put the same uh, price, you both made the same amount of money. But if one decided to go a little bit lower, they were going to make... 50% more than uh, the other person. So you're supposed to talk, figure out, hey, what are we going to do? And um, logically, you should both agree because by the end of it, you're going to make the same amount of money. But if one of you were to... Um, oh, the other thing was if, if you both decided to lower your prices, then you would both make 25% uh, of what it was, right? So you could either make 150 or 25. And yeah, logically, yeah. you're like, okay, well we will both come out on top if we just do the same pricing. Well, but you're incentivized to maximize. So therefore, if as soon as one person messes over the other person, now you've lost the trust. Now you're both yep. going to try to do the lower price. And then ultimately, you both hurt each other. Point being is that when you're in an open market, as much as you think logically, hey, everyone should just do the same thing, you're not. Because as long as there's a free market and capitalism and other stuff like that, people are going to try to maximize profits. You, it's, it's not the free market. What people say, proof of work and proof of stake, it's just wrong. They're saying, what they're saying is they're saying, I can't solve this problem. I've got this stuff I need to pay for. The free market will take care of it because it's value. Mm -hmm. And they don't understand, they genuinely don't understand economics and they don't understand free markets don't do that. Like 
These people, they'd say, well, of course you guys will cooperate or somebody will pay you to cooperate because that's how like, that's how the free market will sort out this problem. And yeah, it's not. Um, you know, so, like, so, so David, so we've addressed two major things and these are two big problems. And now I just kind of, and I'm sure the audience is curious as well. Yeah. So how, how is it that you've now built up Sato to address those two issues? Well, uh, do you want a technical discussion of the mechanism that solves them or no uh, high level of like, okay, how this is our approach to uh, tackling both of these challenges. I mean, basically you, you fix the incentives. Um, what we have with uh, the first problem is we have something that's, we call it the transient chain. It's a looping blockchain where you put a transaction on the chain and it kind of loops around. And at the very end, it's going to pay a tiny fee through consensus that jumps it to the top of the chain again. And the result is that new and old transactions are always competing for space on the chain. And the people that are making blocks, they maximize their income when they maximize the amount of data they can put on the chain. Um, <clears throat> but if they put too much data on the chain, then they're paying higher costs than they need to pay. So the economic incentives basically lead to the optimal blockchain size. Um, you can think of it as a form of rent, but it's a very smart form of rent. We've got like PDFs and uh, slideshows and videos that talk about this. It's called automatic transaction rebroadcasting. Um, it basically also solves a lot of problems on the side, like the blockchain can never get too big to collapse. So, so big it collapses, right? Because if it gets too big and the cost of supporting it gets really high, the people who are making blocks, they actually want to shrink it down because shrinking it down allows them to make more money. So that's the first solution. The second solution is understanding the problem. The problem is one of value measurement, right? So if we go back to the prisoner's dilemma, like what are you cheating on? What you're really doing is you're doing some form of work that allows you to privatize gains, but allows you to socialize losses. And the, the socialized losses part are like, well, I'm going to get the staking income, but Infura will pay for fee collection. Someone else will pay for the server that's supporting the light clients on the network. Like Ethereum, they've got huge issues with light client support. No one wants to run those servers because they're expensive. So it's like, well, I'll make money staking, but I'm not going to do that. Someone else can do that. And the solution that we use for this is we don't have mining, we don't have staking, we have a different consensus algorithm. And what it does is it measures the amount of money that people bring into the network. And people are paid for collecting money. And the mechanism has the properties of proof of work and the properties of proof of stake. But we don't have stake and we don't have mining as something that's producing blocks. It's just money. And what's really challenging for people about Sato is that this seems like it's a crazy idea. Because like we're spending money to make blocks and then we make the block and we make some money. Why can't I just spin this thing in circles like an engine? Um, but that problem is actually what Sato solves. So the problems that Sato solve are with these money-only blockchain systems. Um, and we do it basically by if you're a block producer, uh, you've got to pay people who collect the fees for... You've got to pay them. And if you don't pay them, it's going to cost you more money than it's worth. So the cheapest thing to do is to pay them the money that they're due. And the end result of this is that if you're playing this game in Sato, if you are using fees that come from real people, 
real users, you will make money. But if you're an attacker, you're going to have to spend your own money to try to compete. And you're going to lose much more of that than you can get back. So it's, uh, it's an economic game. It's not like a voting game. Proof of work and proof of stake are voting games. It's like, take this money, go out the back door, buy some mining, buy some staking, you know, or rent it. Come back in and whoever has 51%, we're going to give them all the money. Uh, Same right. is not like... So that is two interesting approaches to it. Um, especially the solving the first problem to where you have old transactions and new transactions competing basically to for consensus and then getting rewarded for the optimal size. So mm-hmm. basically when you go back and look at different blocks on, on your chain, they are different sizes, which I think that in itself is unique. And then you have the other piece of it Aver- where... Things average out, right? Um, okay. You know, like if there's one block that's huge, uh, the block producers have an incentive to hold the fees and, and make the next one slightly larger, right? Like no one wants a gigabyte block and then a megabyte block. Um, but yeah, it's uh, like the free market, the profit incentives are what regulate it. You know, we don't need a developer going like, well, I think it's two megabytes now. Right. So that's constantly adjusting. And then from the other side of it, you have incentivized users who are coming on and using it that don't want to attack and try to manipulate it because it's, it's, it wouldn't benefit them to do so. It, it benefits them to uh, cooperate and, and kind of work in a synergistic way so that they can optimize and, and spend the least amount of money while making the most amount at the same time. Um, it solves a lot of problems. Um, and it solves a lot of problems because these fundamental issues, the scalability trilemma, which isn't real, but that's an economic problem. And it's an economic problem in proof of work and proof of stake. The 51% attack is an economic problem. Like, what is that? That's, I can buy 51% of votes and collect 100% of the money. So, well, what is that? That's privatizing gain and socializing loss. The property that Sato's consensus mechanism guarantees is you will be paid. If you do 20% of the work, you will be paid your 20% regardless of who produces the block. So Sato's got these wonderful properties that no other blockchain has. Like you can have a single Google in the network that is producing 80% of the blocks in the network. And everyone else is perfectly happy because they can't attack. Because if they attack, they will go bankrupt because the cost of attacking the network at scale is so high that they'll lose like, it's basically inverse. If you've got 80% of the work, attacking the chain costs you the cost of 20% per block. So why would you do that? One, you're not going to do it because there's no economic incentive to try to get that point of leverage. But two, like, why would you want to burn money to attack a blockchain that's making you money? Um, but you know, you can, you can think about it. Like maybe I'll throw a really interesting, uh, thought experiment at you, which is a lot of people, which is this, a lot of people in blockchain, they say decentralization, decentralization, decentralization. What is the value of decentralization? Like that's a technical term, but almost nobody who says decentralization matters is actually thinking about like the topology of the network. They're using it to imply something else. 
when they the I can, the, the I can, thing I can, that they imply, I think, when you think of decentralization, is uh, freedom and not being uh, one entity owning it, and you yes. having a lot more control of your own information, you know, etc. It's um, it's basically it's an economic property called openness, which is non-excludability, which means everyone gets to participate on equal terms. So you know, if you want to use the network, you're on the same terms as everyone else. And if you want to participate in running the network, you're participating on the same terms as everyone else. And in proof of work and proof of stake, it's very, very easy for those properties to get destroyed, right? Like proof of work, the bigger blocks get, the harder they are to move around the network. And there's a bunch of slow miners that get them late and they're just not profitable because they're always mining on the last block, you know? Or you get like three proof of stake cartels and they're teaming up. And they're doing minor extracted value. And they're way more profitable than everyone else. And so they use the fact that they're huge to just drive the profits for everyone else into the ground. And we get like Lidu Finance. There's like this one staking as a service company that's basically cleaning up. It's going to be a huge monopoly in ETH too. There's no solution for that. And But people say, oh, decentralization. It's like, no, it's openness. Um, right. And non but go back to the incentive problems because a lot of these incentive problems, well, in economics, they're called collective action problems. And they're caused when you have openness and you have money at stake. Openness means you don't have a government. You don't have a trusted third party deciding what you can choose, right? There's no police. Like if you choose to lower the cost of your gas, the cops aren't going to come and throw you in the slammer. Um, it's an open system. You can do whatever you want. Uh, it's the same in blockchain. It's these people. And so there's these economic terms, economic concepts that Sato actually protects. And the problem with proof of work and proof of stake is that they don't. So with getting away from the concept of proof of work and proof of stake, would you say that you're, that Sato is creating its own mechanism to combat against both of these that truly help solve the challenges that have been talked about today? Or how, yes. would you how would you describe that? It solves it. Um, it solves it uh, kind of, as I said, the, the work in the system is going out and collecting money. So what happens is people go out and collect money. Um, people who are really good at that, they'll get a chance to produce a block. And then the network plays a game that picks someone who wins. Uh, and the person who wins is not likely to be the block producer. Sometimes it will be though. So everyone who does the work of collecting money has a chance to get paid from the lottery. But no, you know, if the block producer is like, ah, oh, I want to produce all these blocks, I'm attacking the network. They're spending all of their own money to do that. But their chance of getting it back is very small. So what Sato does is it does something that proof of work and proof of stake can't even approach. Um, it guarantees that if someone is attacking the network, it will always cost them money. Unless they are doing it with fees that are paid for by other people. So it's basically, Sato guarantees this fundamental property of Bitcoin, which is that you can, you know, if you want to wait, you're making a transaction. Uh, you don't know if this guy's going to stab you in the back. So you want to wait 10 confirmations, 20 confirmations. Well, we can guarantee that that cost will hold. And so you can wait however many you need to be safe. That's not the case with Bitcoin. It's not the case with proof of stake. It's the case until someone has 
or until the network loses the core properties of openness. And all of a sudden, there are a couple of big players who they can decide to do what they want. It's a really interesting concept. So you're, take, you're, you're making it more secure in the sense that there's more levers in place for... There, there, there are fewer levers in place for people to have malicious actions that they can take. Think of it this way. Proof of work and proof of stake, it's a voting system, right? The vote is on who gets to make money. That's why I'm hashing. That's why I'm staking because I want to make a block and I want to make money. And if, you're, if your chain gets orphaned, your block gets orphaned, well, you're not, you're not making any money. So we've got this big back door which is the free market. You go out that, you take your money, you go, you buy some hash, come back. And whoever's bought the votes, well, they get the money. That's why the cost of attack on proof of work and proof of stake is a maximum of about half. It's about half of the fees in the network. Sado, you know, if you get to 51%, you can do whatever you want with the blockchain because you can always get all of the money. Uh, With Sado, our cost of attack is never negative. Uh, it's always positive. So if the blockchain is doing, if you've got a proof of work blockchain doing 100K in fees a day, and you've got a Sado blockchain doing 100K in fees a day, we're twice as secure as Bitcoin. In reality, actually, the cost of attack is much higher than 100%. But uh, it's it's revolutionary in this sense, um, in terms of solving the economic fundamentals. And one of the ways we have to do that is we, the consensus mechanism doesn't have this back door, right? Like, because... What do you do? Like you, the you proof of work, you can't control what people are doing with hash power. You can't control who is buying and renting and colluding. And, you know, the consensus mechanism can't see that. It's literally just have some money. Oh, who has the votes? So it's these very simple and gameable economic mechanisms. With Saito, because the work is collecting money, there's something that's really interesting. The only way you can attack that, like the only way you can attack if you don't have people giving you money, is to reach into your pocket, get your own wallet, and start spending your own money. And the way that the payment lottery works, if you're spending your own money to produce blocks, you're bleeding out to other people in the network. So there's always a cost. And in fact, if you want to attack the network, that's great because you're literally going to be paying everyone in it. So uh, like it, it's a revolutionary and profound shift. And one of the changes is we go away from having this backdoor outside market to a consensus mechanism that is measuring something that is objective and everyone can agree on, which is where did this money come from? And the technical changes are uh, like, some people say, oh, it's complicated because they're thinking proof of work is, is like natural. And they're thinking that like having this outside market where people can game and conspire is normal. And it's like, no, Sato is much simpler. It just says, if you're making a block, show us the work, show us who's putting the money into the block. Where does it come from? And we're going to play a game that guarantees that if that money is yours, you're going to lose it. And the question is, how much can we force you to lose? Uh, And that's the really interesting security question because we can force you to lose more than uh, certainly more than 50%. Right. Well, I'll tell you what, man, this is when you, when you look at foundationally and, and addressing these blockchain issues, Sato's really uh, tackling them head on and, and, and coming out with a, like you said, a revolutionary approach to attacking these. But for, for someone who's listening to this, they're like, man, this is, 
really interesting. Uh, I really like this approach. I really want to potentially build on this or use this, etc. Um, what are some first steps they can take to, to, to start participating on the Sado blockchain? Uh, come to Sado.io. We've got an arcade. So it's S-A-I-T-O.io forward slash arcade. And people can actually use the applications that exist on the network. So it's a bunch of right now, it's heavily gaming because we're we need transaction volume. We need fee throughput for the network to be secure. So that's what we're building. But um, yeah, people can use the blockchain right now um, because there's some there's like a lot of wonderful things that happen when you fix economics. Like uh, I'll give you an example, Richard. When you fix the economics, well, we're fixing the 51% attack. And the solution is you find a way to give the money to people who are earlier in the network who collected the fee, right? So taking money away from the block producer and giving it to the routing node, it's like a tax. But all of a sudden, not only have we solved the 51% attack here, but we're paying these guys who were earlier in the routing network. So we're paying Infura. Because if you are making a transaction or you're running an application in Ethereum, for instance, you're connected to Infura and you send your transaction to them. So with Sado, if you send your transaction to someone, you're paying them because they get a portion of the fee statistically on average because that's how you have to tax the block producer. You got to say, you're making a block, but you're making it with this, with this work that these other guys did payment for, so you've got to give them a claim on payment. What that means is, you know, in proof of work, not only is the security much higher uh, in Sado, but in proof of work, you're spending 100% of network revenue on average on hash power. Like you're just burning it. And so, well, you still got to pay for Infura. They still need a business model. So either they're going to add on extra fees or they're going to do what firms do, which is they're going to say, well, we've got these transaction fees and we're going to sell them to a guy because he'll, he's going to give us a cutback. Not, none of those are good solutions. Um, if you, uh, you know, if they, if they monetize the data, the network loses its property of openness. No one can come in and set up a server because like, well, you're not going to make any money. So this property of openness, of non-excludability, the free market is going to destroy it. Um, that's actually, it's what we're seeing with all of the scalable proof of work and proof of stake blockchains. The more they scale, the more the free market is having to monetize data and close access to the ability to make money. Um, but yeah, like going right back to the original point, in Fura and Sado, it makes money. So if you're using the blockchain and you connect to a server and the server's running some games, it's running poker, uh, we've got a bunch of board games. If people are playing that game, they're paying the server because they're making transactions and they're giving them to the server. So all of a sudden, the money that's flowing into ASICs and mining is now flowing into data centers and ISPs and data provision. So the things we can use the blockchain for, we can use it for a lot more because like, we don't need to rely on volunteer nodes to run these P2P data. You know, like if you want to make money, set up a server and tell users to come and connect to you. And it's going to cost you. You're going to have to spend money on a good server and you're going to have to spend money on bandwidth. But like, that's our form of mining. So right. it's like the stuff that's useful is the form of mining, not the stuff that's useless. So there's, right. there's a paradigm shift. It's, uh, it affects the entire the entire way the blockchain works. Um, and, and you got to get people to get involved and participate. And, and by getting yeah. people to do these transactions and, and be a part of it, they can participate in truly uh, earning 
the money that's in, incentivized by utilizing this blockchain. So I think, again, that's a really cool approach. And, and David, you've, you've given us a ton of really good information today. But, you know, as we kind of uh, wrap up today, what is a final thought that you want to leave with all of our listeners? Um, I would say that to us, the problems that Sato solves are not addressed elsewhere in the industry. And, you know, we've got a video that someone put together. If, have you seen Ready Player One? Yes. Good. It's a fun film. I think it's actually Spielberg's Best in Ages. But there's that scene with the race with Parsifal where, you know, they're having the race and all of the cars scream off and he turns around and he starts driving backwards. And that's what Sato is. Um, we're in some ways, we're a bet on proper economics and ideas. But for everyone who believes in the project, it's a revolutionary paradigm shift on the, on the scale of Bitcoin. And so I'd encourage anyone who is really interested in how do we scale a blockchain to come and learn more. Um, there's a ton of substance. We've got lots of videos, white paper, all of that stuff. But um, yeah, it's not easy. We've got a great Telegram group where people can come and ask questions too. Uh, but yeah, it's don't assume that because people are throwing these tech like dank sharding in Ethereum, don't assume that because people are saying this, they actually know what they're doing. They generally don't. Um, a lot of what passes for technical progress in proof of stake and DAGs and proof of work circles is some developer hard coding economic variables and saying, okay, we're going to do this and it's just not going to work. So yeah, uh, come learn about Sato. It's a bit of a rabbit hole, but if you fall down, you'll end up in a much better place. Excellent. Well, uh, you have definitely given me a lot to think about. And I think the, the approach there's, there's definitely a lot of things that challenge the, the, the norms that have, have been set up as current crypto realities. So, um, thank you for great conversation, uh, challenging some of my own thinking. I'm sure challenge a lot of the thinking of our listeners out there. Um, I know I'm keen on learning a little bit more about what's going on with Sato. So everyone listening, make sure you go check out, uh, S A I T O.io. That's Sato. Um, David, thank you again so much for spending some time with us. And of course, for everyone listening, uh, Oh, you have one more thing. No, I was just going to say, thank you. Uh, hopefully, you know, people who've done game theory, they kind of get it. People who don't, they often have problems with this, but it's, but it's, it's optimal if everyone pays. And it's like, yeah, but you don't want to. It's more <laughs> optimal if you don't pay. And they're like, oh, right. yeah, okay. No, absolutely. Well, everyone, make sure you go and check uh, again. Check, go check out sato.io. And everyone listening, stay cryptocurrent. Hey, Cryptocurrent crew. We want to give a quick shout out to all of our faithful listeners out there. It's been an amazing journey, and we really appreciate your support throughout the years as we've been growing as a community. Each episode, we decided that we would start sharing some of the reviews that you were leaving for us. For today, we would like to share this review. Today's review comes from Cassius Octavius 15. I had an awesome experience as a guest on the show and Richard is a wonderful guy. Well organized, great content. I highly recommend the show. We sincerely appreciate this review and all reviews and would like to ask that if you're enjoying our show, please take a quick moment to go and leave a review on our podcast so that hopefully we can be highlighting your review next. Simply go to our show notes or go to our website where we have a link where you can share your review today. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more information on today's episode and all of our episodes, please visit us at www.crypto-current.co. You can also find a link in the show notes. Want to stay up to date in the latest news in cryptocurrency? 
Sign up for our newsletter today. You'll receive daily emails Monday through Friday that are personalized and curated content specific to you and your interest, powered by artificial intelligence. You can either go to our show notes or go to our website to sign up today. We would like to give a special shout out to our moon sponsor, Acacia Digital. Acacia invests in partners with early stage blockchain companies who are solving complex problems in large markets. Acacia partners with projects that have established technology and communities. Acacia supports public projects exhibiting strong momentum and capacity to grow into large markets. Acacia also directly participates in limited releases such as NFTs tied to unique experiences, access, or products. For more information, go to acaciadigital.io. Again, that's acaciadigital.io. Are you an accredited investor looking to invest in cryptocurrency? Crescent City Capital can help. Go to crescentcitycapital.com for more information. I don't know if you've noticed, but the quality of our podcast each week are improving. I can only thank my amazing producer, Andrew DeRitter with DeRitter Productions, who has been putting all of this together. If you have any podcast, music, or audio needs, please go to deritterproductions.com. That's D-E-R-I-T-T-E-R productions.com. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Cryptocurrent with Richard Carthon. We'll be back with more exciting developments from the world of blockchain and cryptocurrency next week. But until then, stay Cryptocurrent. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cryptocurrent. Just one quick reminder. Cryptocurrent is a cryptocurrency and blockchain education platform that's bridging the gap between the curious newcomers who are just discovering the space and the thought leaders who are shaping its future. All opinions expressed by Richard Carthon, the Cryptocurrent team, and their guests on this show are exclusively their own opinions. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Richard, the team, and their guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or to follow his financial advice. This show and any other cryptocurrent production is exclusively for informational purposes.